Moto America fans, it's time for another episode of Off Track with Carruthers and Bice. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you may even learn something from this unlikely pair and their special guest. The mic is yours, Paul and Sean. Hello, Moto America fans, and welcome to another edition of Off Track with Carruthers and Bice. This is a uh, a non-video edition, obviously, which is probably best for me. Um, but uh, I do like doing the video ones when we're at the track, no doubt about it. But for sure, these video ones are a little easier on the eyes, especially when I'm involved. So, um, but uh, anyway, so uh, I'm joined, of course, as always, by our communications director, uh, Paul Carruthers. Uh, hello, Paul. That's pretty good. I went from manager to director. I hope I get a raise. I'm moving you up. Yeah, exactly. Thanks, man. Can you make me senior vice president of marketing or of communications? Would that work? Yeah. And I'm glad you picked up on that because I absolutely did that on purpose because it's about damn time you're the director. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is our 242nd podcast. I just looked it up. Wow. Kind of crazy. <laughs> we've done them basically every week. We've missed a couple of weeks. I think we've missed one. I think we've only missed a total of two or maybe three. Yeah, there haven't been many. Yeah, and there's always been something a little weird that caused it. I mean, we actually missed one recently when we were at Laguna, but you know that was a that was a weird day that Thursday. We usually try to do them on Thursday on in video form, but you know when we got there, as a lot of fans know, we had some issues with our website, and we were kind of trying to figure that out, and it affected our ability to put stories up on the on the website, including previews and all kinds of stuff. So. We were scrambling a little bit to get that, and um, the uh, podcast had to take a back seat. But uh, you know, we're back, and and uh, you know, we've had what one or two since then. So, and then our next one will be video because we'll be at Brandon International Raceway um, up in uh, the land of ten thousand lakes in Minnesota. And it's so weird about that area, Paul. I know I, you probably noticed the same thing, but when we go to look for accommodations up there, if you actually look at it on a map, it's kind of weird how. Like that track is right in the middle of a bunch of the lakes that are in Minnesota. <laughs> there's like a ton of them right around there. Yeah, I think there's a thousand right there, and then the other nine thousand are somewhere else. But yeah, it's 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 kind of a it's it's kind of an odd place. It's a little, I guess it's a you know, it's funny when you're from California, you don't have these like so much little like lake towns, you know, like Elkhart Lake is one and. And, and, and obviously Brainerd where, you know, people vacation and they go there and stay on the lake. It's just, it seems so foreign to me being, you know, in Southern California, cause that's not something we do. I guess we just go to the ocean, but yeah. um, it, 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 I mean, I, <clears throat> I've been going there since, I guess I would have gone there in 86 or something right. back, when it, back when it was the big track. And then there was world Superbike. And then, you know, obviously we didn't go there for a long time. And then, and then we started going again and it's a, you know, it's a, it, it uses, it uses some of the old track obviously, but there's also some new stuff. So it's a bit different, but the, the town is, the town is still the same. It hasn't really changed much in all those years. And it's just, uh, yeah, it's kind of cool. It's, it's a different little place. Like I said, it's a little resort town and I guess it's a, I guess it's a big honeymoon place or it used to be. I don't know if it still is, but it was like, you know, if you if you live in Minneapolis and you get married, maybe bring it to a place that you end up uh, honeymooning with. So that's why you always that's why I think, Sean, you're a little bit more romantic when we're in Brainerd, maybe. I'm always more romantic. And I was about to say for you, since you're recently engaged, um, 
you know, you're going to have to pick out the place you're going to get married up there, you know? So. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to be honeymooning in Brainerd, but we'll see. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get started with this week's guest. And it's it's a writer that it's kind of hard to believe we have never had him on here. And it's long overdue to have him because um, it's Corey West. And it's incredible when you look back at Corey's uh, career. He's been around for a long time and it belies his look because he doesn't look like an, an aged veteran of racing. Um, still got a big smile on his face all the time and um, always a good guy to talk to in the paddock. But I mean, he got his start in road racing probably well long before 2001, but as far as a professional racer in 2001 and he was a two, he was 2004 AMA Superbike rookie of the year. Um, and then he had a long career. He's, he, he's one of the riders we can count in our current paddock who, and we'll check this with Corey, but I'm sure this is right. He is, is a former factory, uh, superbike rider. He raced for EBR and I'm sure he was a factory rider for that group. And, you know, he raced, um, in, in Moto America. Well, it was AMA pro racing or AMA racing before that, but he also did some racing overseas and in China. And, you know, we'll talk to him about some of that kind of started out in two strokes, which is uh, near and dear to Paul's in my heart for sure. Um, and this year he's currently ranked ninth in mission King of the baggers. He rides a team settlement HD or I'm sorry, Harley Davidson road glide. And, um, he actually also races in mission super hooligan national championship. Uh, one of the, uh, riders who actually climbed aboard a Pan a Harley Davidson Pan America this year. And he's doing even better in that class. He's actually fourth ranked in that championship championship. He's had um, five top fives out of the six races so far, a couple podiums. He was second at Ridge. He was third and fourth at Laguna. And um, they've only got one more round in that um, series, that championship, which will be at CODA. So it's kind of a rare treat for those guys to be able to race down there. Um, so, you know, obviously a little bit better results in, in hooligan, but certainly one of the king of the baggers riders as well aboard a Harley. And we're going to definitely talk to him about the, both those in king of the baggers. They've got three more rounds, including this next round next weekend at Brainerd. So Corey will be on track um, with his team Saddleman uh, group, which includes uh, Jake Lewis and also Corey's wife, Patricia Fernandez hyphen west and uh they have quite a story to tell we did a little piece on them recently which was around the theme of for the love of the sport so um and it's truly that way with those guys with those two writers uh patricia and Corey. but anyway long introduction but Corey, welcome to the podcast hey thanks for having me guys you're doing well thanks for not doing the video you know i got a face for radio Oh, I'm worse. Yeah, I don't think no. You got a nice smile for you. You know, I got a quick story to start this with because I think, like everybody else, you know, Patricia's Patricia's very popular in the paddock, obviously because she looks pretty darn good. You know, like she looks a lot better than Corey. And <laughs> and it's funny. The other, I, I forget what race they're they're both always smiling, right? I mean, I've never seen yes. anybody as happy as those two. Yes. Um, you know, at some point we should maybe just sit down with both of them and find out how to get that happy and, and pass it on. Maybe we can make some money out of it, Sean. But yeah. I was walking past um, Patricia. I think it was like on Hot Pit. She was in leathers going one direction and I was just dressed regular going the other way. And I said, man, you're always smiling. And she said, you know, if you look this good, you'd be you'd be happy, too. 
And I was like, well, <laughs> that pretty much summarizes it. But that at that point, I also thought, well, that's something Corey couldn't be able to answer to that because he definitely doesn't look as good as her. But that's my that's my happy Fernandez story of the day. But uh, Corey, you've been I, it, when when Sean started mentioning, you know, like 2004. That seems like a zillion years to me. Did, does it, has that gone quickly for you or does it also seem like a long, long time ago? I mean, it, it goes by fast, but then you look back on it and you're like, man, that was a long time ago. So, I mean, when you look back at it and like race seasons, it seems like those seasons, they just, they go by so fast, but then you look back at like the years and it's like, holy cow, that was over 20 years ago almost. So since I started anyway, so yeah, I'm, I'm old guy now. Crazy. I really, I really don't think you that way, though. Yeah, I that's mean, what I am. I was like, I was sitting there just in stunned silence because I'm like, he's not that old. But how old are you? I will be 39 uh, next month. Oh, he's a baby. Yeah, but still 39. Yeah. I, I, that's kind of surprised. That shocks me. But then when you, you think back to when you started, Corey, and you know, it's funny. Um, I think for Paul and me, um, cause we're, we're a few years beyond you, but when you think of, you know, riders from Arkansas, I mean, you certainly come up with the one that we think of for Paul and, and I, of course, because of re- certain reasons is John Kosinski and, you know, John's a little bit before, a little bit older than you, but you know, John made, made a lot of, uh, waves in two stroke racing and that's kind of how you started. So I want to go way back there for a minute and. Did you, was John any kind of an influence on you racing two strokes? Do you know him? Is there any connection at all? No. Um, so my dad back in the day when he was doing some flat track stuff, he says he remembers seeing, uh, John and his dad come to some of the, the flat track races and he was just a kid, you know? Um, and honestly, I've never met, uh, John Kosinski, but obviously he was the first big name, uh, from Arkansas that, went on to the world stage, but, um, yeah, for me, I mean, like I turned 16 and my dad, you know, we went the route of getting my road race professional road race card. And then, um, you know, the, the only real entry level class would have been 250 grand Prix on two strokes or then maybe like uh pro thunder back in the day, the between class. So I dabbled in both those classes a little bit in my first, first couple of years and then moved on to the inline four cylinders. You know, it's funny way back. That was, that was my favorite class. It's probably, probably still is. If you think about, I mean, su- certainly super bike, but man, that two fifty GP class, everybody that was involved in that. And you think about Roland Sands and uh, Chris Sorensen, or even, be, even before that, I mean, you know, Thomas Stevens was involved in it, but you know, it's funny, Corey, the, I always think that it's, it, always feels like such, I guess I can't think of another word other than to say an esoteric group of riders. I mean, their riders were a little different. You know, the tuners were always very involved in making sure the atmosphere was just the way they needed to be for jetting and stuff. And they always had their dials out and they're doing stuff. And obviously when they would fire them up, um, you know, they didn't have electric starters or kickstarters. You guys had to bump start them. And um, then that just that smell wafted through the air was just the most amazing thing. And you know, pure, obviously purely, you know, closest to what GP bikes were, were back then. Um, 
And I mean, I still have a fond place in my heart for those. And I, I know Paul does too. You know, I still have a TZR250, a 92 model. And um, I I love that bike so much. And and you probably, do you still harbor a little bit of um, sentimental sentimentality towards two strokes? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, um, honestly, I feel like two strokes wouldn't hurt nowadays. I mean, uh, right. these kids come up now, right? You know, they come up riding Ninja 400s and stuff like that. And to, to to put a Ninja 400 and a TZ250 next to each other, I mean, you're looking at a a spork and a razor knife. So, it's, I mean, we just we just learned on different motorcycles. And, you know, it it makes you a good rider when you're when you're, you know, riding such a, a sharp edge motorcycle. But um you know, not to take anything away from the kids on the 400s, they're definitely riding the crap out of those things too. But um, yeah, the old two strokes, man, they're, they're rad. I miss them. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I haven't really thought about that. You know, a lot of people these days talk about, you know, whether riders, you know, riders in our series or in any, any series should start off on like a more proper sort of related to a, a GP chassis, like a moto three or something. And maybe that's kind of the deal with 250 GP back then. Like you said, I mean, it kind of did train you on a, on a, well, it was, they were production road racers, but they were not like converted street bikes, which is what obviously junior cup bikes are. So, you know, maybe, maybe that's kind of the secret a little bit that you guys, you guys started out on those bikes and, and um, obviously we know what Rich Oliver did um, with his career and, you know, gave, gave two strokes a, a big name for history is in production racing in the U S but maybe there's something to be said there, Corey, that, you know, that may, maybe was what you, what now would have been people would think of as moto two or moto three for kind of training to get, get on um, actual proper race bikes. Do you think there's a connection there? For sure. I mean, they, they taught me a lot. I mean, I, I crashed that 250 quite a few times and I think I only low sided it once. So uh, <laughs> high siding was a, a thing and those bikes were unforgiving. So you either learn fast or you quit basically <laughs> well yeah and i mean talking about learning fast not too long after that you were you were super bike rookie of the year um you had a pretty big transition that was only a couple of years later that you you had that whole situation so tell us about your first foray into Superbike. so i'm gonna back up just a little bit so yeah. 2001 2002 uh were my first years on 250s I made it about halfway through 2002 and the two strokes were just eating our lunch, you know, between my dad and I, it was really tough to have enough parts to keep the bike maintained. And we were blowing them up a lot. It was just, it was really hard. So we went the route of, um, we took a step sideways. We went to formula USA at that time. They had a series that was, uh, dirt track and road race. And so I kind of came up from a flat track background. So we kind of went that way. I rode a 600 and a 450 when they first came out. I chased that championship for that year. And then uh, 2003, uh, Kenny Roberts helped me get a ride over in Spain. And I raced in the Spanish championship in 03 on a 600 Honda. It was actually Chavi Forez's teammate back then, which is kind of crazy. But um, when I came home from Spain, uh, the only viable option was to 
build a 1000 and go into Superbike because they had the healthiest purse. Uh, Chevy Trucks was sponsoring the series back then. And, um, you know, if you could finish in the top 20, you were going to make a couple grand. And so that's what my dad and I did. We, we found this, uh, old Suzuki. I think it was the O three GSXR 1000 that was actually like a, uh, insurance repo. It was like total or, or something, but it had a big old scratch in the frame. Everything else was all right. So we just threw some race body work on it put a tuner on it and i mean this is before quick shifters and all that jazz so we basically didn't even have any spare wheels i think we had maybe one spare rear or something <laughs> so we just throw the bike in the van and just started chasing the championship and uh the very first race was daytona uh in 2004 and that was the last year the superbikes ran the 200 and um you know my dad had done the 200 a few times in the 80s and had a lot of good advice and uh we had a few friends help us and i ended up finishing 13th uh first time in the 200 and that just kind of kept going throughout the year i mean i went to some tracks where there was a lot of locals and it was hard to break the top 20 and then uh later on in the year we went to brainerd the old layout and i finished uh 13th there again so that, those are my best finishes were 13th that season which was pretty decent if you look at the entry list back then but um i think i only crashed out of maybe one race at laguna that year and so i did i did pretty darn good in the points for a privateer and uh ended up coming home with the rookie of the year award which was you know cherry on top that's pretty awesome now we have to backtrack just for a second Corey. you got to tell us a little bit about this thing you mentioned kenny roberts so you know Paul's dad tuned for Kenny. Um, how did you get connected with Kenny? Was it, was it your dad? I mean, how did, how did that connection go from, well, Arkansas out to Modesto or where he ever, you know, the ranch and then the whole thing was Spain. I mean, that's pretty good that you got hooked up with him. Yeah, it was, uh, through a mutual friend of the family, uh, Ronnie Jones, big dirt track guy, national number 16 forever. Uh, him and my dad were pretty good buds and, uh, Ronnie and Kenny are good buddies because Ronnie beat Kenny at the Astrodome way back when. And so um, I, the story I was told was Kenny asked Ronnie if he knew any young up-and-coming dirt trackers that road race. And Ronnie mentioned my name. And so I got to go out to Kenny's ranch. Oh, I want to say it was like the winter of 01 going into 02. And uh, I believe Kenny Jr. was the world champ then. Yeah. And so I got to go out there and I spent just a, a, a weekend, like three days. Uh, Ronnie Ronnie was there. Kenny Sr. was there. Curtis was there. And so I rode with those guys on XR100s for a couple of days and uh, basically got the invite to come back over the winter and train with everybody. And so I went back that winter and I spent like like four weeks, I think. it was. It was really cool. And so just rode XR 100s, went to the gym, did some dirt bike riding with those guys at the ranch. And then uh, Kenny kind of threw it out like, hey, I'm owed a favor over in Spain because he was still running his Grand Prix team and uh, just threw it out there. Like, would you be interested in going over and racing in Spain for the for next year? And uh, I was, you know, fresh out of high school. 
And that was kind of the dream. Like, yeah, of course, that would be amazing. Like I knew nothing about racing in Spain. And so, uh, he kind of put the deal together and before you know it, I was over there testing and, um, I spent three months, the first trip over and then they don't do anything in August. And then I went back for another three months and, and finished the season out. Um, it was tough. I was on a, it was the year that the 600 RR Honda came out and I was on the last year's model, the F4i. So I kind of got my butt kicked, but, um, <laughs> had a couple, had a couple points scoring finishes, got to ride a bunch of really cool tracks and learned a ton. And when I came back from Spain, uh, I felt like I had sharpened my knife pretty well. Okay. So you mentioned Chavi being your teammate. Is, when he, when you saw him this year, was it like you, you go talk to him, you remember him, he remembers you and you're like, Holy crap, you're in America. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, we kind of looked at each other like, yeah, we're both old now, but welcome <laughs> to the States. <laughs> I, I mean, of course, when, he, when I was over there, I didn't really speak any Spanish and he didn't speak a lot of English. So we would, you know, gesture towards each other occasionally. And I mean, for the most part, Chavi, you know, kicked my butt, but there was a couple of rounds where it rained and I was, I was right up there with everybody and kind of got their attention when it was wet out. Being Spanish, he probably had the RR. Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, there you go. That's your excuse. There was there was some there was some politics going on. I mean, none of the Spanish guys wanted to see the Americans beat all their people, and I don't think I was at that level. But at the same time, it was I was kind of handicapped from the get go. But I, you know, I I'm grateful for the experience. It was it was super rad, and like I also got to go to all the Grand Prix that year in Spain and hang out with Kenny's team and. You know, Chuck Axlund was running the team back then. So that's when I first met Chuck and all that, all that jazz. So, yeah, super cool. I mean, it was great to get to see like the behind the scenes of how Grand Prix teams work and, you know, the level um, that road racing is over there in Europe. It was, it was an eye opener for sure. Well, I'm going to fast forward a bit. Sean may want to take us back again, but for now, I'm going to, I'm going to jump forward to, to now. And do you, do you see this like king of the baggers hooligans? I mean, that's like a, that's like a, a second career for you. Right. I mean, it's like giving life back to, and, and I, I'm not going to say your career was dead by any means, but I mean, don't, don't, don't you think that gave it a big shot being involved in this king of the baggers, but especially with how, how, how it's kind of blown up. Absolutely. I mean, factory team, you know, factory rides are so, so hard to come by here in the States. And, um, you know, I kind of felt like I had gone down every avenue there was as far as road racing goes. And, you know, we all know this is an expensive sport and it got to where it was like, well, I can't really afford to keep doing this. And if I'm not really getting any offers, I'm just going to have to find something else to do. And then, uh, that first year of the, the bagger thing, you know, we did the exhibition race at Laguna and. I was fortunate enough to, you know, have my name in a hat and got to ride. Uh, <laughs> I got to ride one of those crazy things. I mean, they were real baggers back then, real street bikes. So, um, yeah, just throw my leg over one of those and give her hell. And we ended up fifth, I think, at the first one. And then uh, 
you know, that just kind of got my name in there with the uh, American B twin community. And, and then, man, it's just been amazing to see how quick it's all progressed. Um, you know, the baggers are crazy. And then the hooligans, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of more like a, feels like more like a regular road race bike, even though they're naked and handlebars and whatever, but like they're lighter and feel more like a regular motorcycle. So, uh, my first go on one of those was like a Indian FTR 1200 and I rode it and was like, man, we should, we should maybe do the hooligan series. And, and it's just all progressed. I mean, it's been, it's been awesome, you know, cause you know, a, a guy from Arkansas that's raced motorcycles since he was straight out of high school. I don't know a whole lot more than motorcycles. So it's awesome to, uh, to still be in it. And this whole bagger thing has, has really given me that second opportunity. You know, Corey, I want to talk about Super Hooligan a little bit. And this is kind of interesting, at least for me. And and I'm not by telling this little story, I'm not saying I had anything to do with influencing it. But last year when Kyle uh, was doing, I think it was for Revzilla. Yeah, it was Revzilla. And it was um, those guys were riding his bike, um, his Hooligan, or I'm sorry, his King of the Baggers bike. And they had a Pan America there. and Kyle was riding that bike and, you know, uh, Brian J or whoever was taking photos of it. And Kyle was going pretty fast around the track on that Pan America. Um, and I remember, um, talking to Zach who is with, uh, um, Revzilla about it. And he said, damn, you know, Kyle's really fast on that bike. So I talked to Kyle and I said, you know, I wonder if that Pan America would, would, you know, could be or made to fit in that class. And, it ended up, I ended up talking to Roland about it and Roland said, you know, it's a little bit higher horsepower, but I'm sure they could, you know, do something with that. And I guess what they did is they changed the airbox on the top of the uh, top of it to be able to restrict it a little bit more. Um, and I mean, it's, it's weird. It's an ADV bike. It, I get the impression it's a pretty high bike and now you're racing it. You Patricia are racing it and you've actually done really well on that bike. I mean, you were second at Ridge. Like I said, you got, you've had five top fives so far. Um, you were third and fourth at Laguna and you know, you're right in the mix with those. I, I think those, that FTR 1200 is absolutely a weapon is so is Andy Debrino's um, KTM. Those hyper Motard Ducatis are pretty good, but then you've got this, you know, American V twin ADV bike that you guys could have converted. Um, it does okay in that class. Tell us about riding that bike in super hooligan. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a super fun bike to ride. Um, it is a little bit on the big side. I mean, the FTR 1200 was kind of a big bike and then the Pan America is like a, a plus size version. Um, unfortunately it does make more horsepower than the rules allow and so they came up with a formula where we run uh the harley davidson sportster s model it has the same engine just a different airbox and velocity stacks and so the rules were we've got to run sportster s velocity stacks and airbox lid right and um so, so that's what we've done um it's a competitive motorcycle right out of the get-go um Unfortunately, there's not really anybody that makes performance parts for them, and so we're just kind of learning as we go. It's been it's been pretty tough, honestly. I mean, we we had a great showing at Daytona. Um, unfortunately, you know, the tune that we had to put in the bike uh, 
we had someone do the first tune for Daytona and it caused one of our engines to to melt down on the high banks. And so Harley was generous enough to give us a demo bike, you know, a, a stocker and okay, well, you guys can take the motor out of that thing. And so the, the boys at Salomon stayed up, you know, well past when they want you to leave the garages at Daytona to put that motor in my bike. And so uh, in the in the rush of getting it all buttoned up at two in the morning, they accidentally grabbed the wrong airbox and put it in my race bike. I mean, they sent me pictures and there was it's basically two motorcycles torn to pieces and there was just parts everywhere between the stock bike and our bike and you know, late night confusion, they grabbed the wrong airbox and then I went out and won uh race two at Daytona. Um, the only time I really got into scrap with those guys this year and uh we won that one heads up. Well then post race tech they tear into that air box and unfortunately we had the wrong velocity stacks in it. Uh it was a simple mistake by our guys, but it was unfortunate because it was you know, it was really cool to bring home a win the first weekend on a brand new motorcycle for yeah. Harley, for Saddleman, for everybody. We were all really stoked, but uh, we got DQ'd and we just kind of had to let that one go. But um, now that we've thrown away all those other velocity stacks so we don't make that mistake again, <laughs> we've been slowly making progress. I mean, we still don't even have a quick shifter on the bike, but... Um, it seems like Harley is starting to take some interest by just seeing how well I've been doing in the class. So hopefully we can, um, you know, sharpen, sharpen that Pan America a little bit and get a little closer to the, the front guys. So it's one more round in that class. It's going to be at Coda, two more races. Do you wish the season was a little longer in Super Hooligan since you are developing that bike so much? Yeah, honestly, it would be great to ride it. Uh, at some different tracks it seems like we we take these naked bikes with no fairings to all these really fast race tracks <laughs> it's hard on the neck let me tell you that number plate doesn't offer a whole lot of <laughs> wind protection but um yeah i mean they're fun bikes i feel like people can kind of relate to them more because it's something that you would actually see maybe on the street more than just like a fully fared sport bike but um, yeah, we'll see. It seems like uh, Roland's getting a lot of entrants that are coming to play in the hooligan class. So I don't know. Maybe next year we'll see more. Yeah, heck, they. I think they had a couple of SV1000 Suzuki's at Laguna. So yeah, the formula kind of fits for a lot of different manufacturers. Um, let's talk a little more about King of the Baggers. Um, you, we did a tech piece with you, Corey, um, recently about the uh, double. You've got a thumb brake with a separate uh, caliper on the rear of your bike and you, and a separate caliper for the front, basically a front hand brake. Or I'm sorry, wait a minute. Thumb brake on the left, foot brake on the right, both going to the rear wheel, but two separate calipers, completely separate independent lines. It was a little bit of an innovative uh, difference on the thumb brake because usually they're kind of plumbed into the same thing or you have one or the other or something like that. So, but I found out um, one of your guys was on my plane and I think, is there an Eric on your team? Yes. 
okay, Eric is the one I met. So we talked and I, I remembered him from being in the background when we, you and I were talking and he has told me that, that now all the, all the bikes, like uh, Jake's got, Jake's got the two calipers on the back. It's kind of proliferated throughout your team with the, uh, on the HD road glide in uh, mission King of the baggers. Is that true that now you kind of started out with it, but now everybody's using it. Yeah, I think when they first did it, they weren't sure if it was going to be good or not. And so they asked if I would be willing to try it before they, you know, pony up the money and fit them to all the bikes uh, under our tent. So I wrote it like that. And then, uh, yeah, it works really good. I think they were kind of concerned about a few things, but we didn't have any uh, glitches with it at Road America. And so... Yeah, everyone. I don't think Patricia's running it yet. I don't think she's a big thumb brake user. So okay. Um, yeah. So yeah, uh, I know Jake, uh, Frankie, and I are all running it right now. Hey, Frankie, yes, forgot. God, how could I not mention Frankie? Frankie. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> okay, I want to ask you a little bit more about this because we didn't talk about this so much when we were doing the the. Uh, video because you were specifically talking about the mechanics of it. Um, but now that you've ridden it a little bit and you are a, a flat tracker, I don't know this for a fact, but I would assume being a flat tracker, you use the rear brake, if not some, then quite a bit. So there are times obviously when you can't get your foot in the right position to use that rear brake, which is why the thumb brake is there. So double question on this, Corey, do you use the thumb brake and the rear brake and the foot brake, um, the foot pedal uh, interchangeably during a race? Do you use one or the other? And do you use it a fair amount and what for in those races? Um, mostly in the heavy braking zones is when I'll use the foot brake. Um, I can use that foot brake basically dragging all the way to the apex. And then the thumb brake is more for when you're back on the throttle. Um, it seems like I don't have a ton of feel with my foot. So it's harder to gauge how much pressure I'm giving the brake when I'm back on the gas. So therefore, it's much easier to use the the thumb brake when I'm trying to blend the throttle and brake at the same time, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. Sorry, Paul, I, was, I know you're going to go next. I just want to say, so I had talked to Matthew Skultz about this a little bit. They've experimented with a thumb brake. But to to the point of you and I talking about this, Corey, as you as you know, or probably would understand, it's 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 one or the other and exactly what you're saying he didn't have the feel he had too much feel in the in the the thumb brake because he could modulate it a lot more than you can with your foot so it wasn't really a, a an apples to apples comparison between the two although it was going to the rear the rear brake um he just didn't like it because they could not figure out a good ratio to make it comparable to what he would do with his foot so um, it's interesting that you use both during a race. So you, you can get that difference between the foot and, and the thumb. That's pretty good. Um, do you, do you, does that make sense to you that it was tough for Matthew to kind of deal with it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's a lot going on. Um, it, it might be honestly easier on a sport bike that has like the auto blipper for downshifts and all that stuff. Oh to yeah. Be able to use the, the thumb brake. Um, on these big Harleys, you know, you've got to clutch it, blip the throttle, do all this stuff to keep the thing happy uh, on under braking. 
And so having your left hand also on a thumb brake is kind of too much. You know, you have to use the clutch. I mean, I maybe I'm one of the only ones that actually does use the clutch on the downshifts, but it just keeps the bike, you know, more under control, I feel like. And, and I don't have time to play with the thumb brake while I'm going into the corner, but that's what my foot's for. I can stomp on that thing because you kind of need to use both brakes to stop these big bikes. I mean, they're, they're heavy. And if you just use front brake only, all that weight is just going to push you in there and you're going to have a whole lot of weight on the front. So, you know, I, I have no problem while I'm straight up and down using my foot. And then once I get, you know, some lean angle and I'm back on the gas, that's kind of when the thumb brake's nice is when it's, you know, a little more delicate. Okay, we've talked a little bit about the on-track stuff and and how fortunate you feel to be part of a of a Harley Davidson program, you know, factory racing, all that stuff in the baggers class. But when I look at what I think is really cool, what it, it kind of I, I would think it would make everybody envious in the paddock that aren't a part of that is to see like you guys just did this Harley Davidson 120th birthday bash. All the Harley guys are there. The baggers guys are there. It looks like you're having a great time. There's concerts. I mean, it. in addition to the racing part, I just think it's a really good time to be part of the Harley Davidson family. Is that, do they, and they make you feel like that, right? Absolutely. Um, it's something that I haven't really experienced as far as, you know, road racing goes here in the, in our country. You know, we don't have any manufacturers in the United States that are pumping out stuff that we race until now. And so, uh, and especially with how big Harley Davidson is worldwide. I mean, it's, uh, here in the States, it's something that people can relate to more than, uh, you know, Kawasaki ninjas or whatever. So, um, you know, Harley stepping up to help sponsor the Saddleman team this year. Um, you know, it just kind of took things to the next level for us. I mean, obviously our team stepped up even bigger and bought a semi truck and four rider team. And it's just been crazy, but, uh, Harley's been super generous and, and, you know, incorporated us in a lot of things this year, which has been really nice. And the 120 20th anniversary up in Milwaukee, you know, they invited all the bagger races up there and it was super cool. I mean, it was like, a Kind of like a little business vacation, but we got to hang out all the, you know, all the racers and their girlfriends slash wives. I mean, going to the concerts at night and doing some autograph signings and just seeing how many people are involved uh, with Harley Davidson or just love the brand. It's just incredible. All right. What the other thing that caught my eye that you got that you got the opportunity to do this year was the Northwest 200, you know, and, and your wife, Patricia has, has been a part of that for a while. I'm not sure how many times she's actually been, but I know she's been before. I believe this was your first time. That's a talk about a crazy event. I mean, I haven't been there since I was a kid when it was actually like the Ulster Grand Prix. Uh, but I mean, t tell us a little bit about that experience. I mean, that's a, that's a real street riding racing track it's uh you're with a bunch of guys that are you know very proficient in that sort of racing some of them aren't that proficient in other forms of racing but for some reason you know there's those specialty guys that that focus on that stuff and they're they're pretty incredible when it comes to that so tell us a little bit about your experience going there for the first time 
Yeah, the Northwest 200 was uh, that was my first go at it. Um, I've gone over to Ireland with Patricia a few times and watched her at the Ulster Grand Prix. I had never been to the Northwest 200, and she said that she told me that like if there was one that you're gonna do, you should do the Northwest 200. Because every time I went over there, everyone's asking me like, when are you gonna do it? When are you gonna do it? And I'm like, man, I don't really know if I care to do this stuff. This is crazy. Right. <laughs> and so the Northwest 200, it's uh, so it's a nine mile basically triangle uh, that connects three towns together. Um, lap times are around five minutes long. Average mile an hour around that place. I think I was somewhere in the you know 115 mile an hour or something like that. So it's really fast. A uh, lot of long straights. And it's yeah, it's public road, so you definitely gotta mind your mind your manners out there. But um, you know, the older I get, the more things that I would like to experience. Um, in 2019, I'd I'd always kind of had the Pikes Peak Hill climb on my bucket list, and I got the opportunity to do that in 2019. And when Patricia she rode for this uh, JMCC roofing team last year at the Northwest 200, and um, I saw some of the pictures and she said, man, this is a really good team. They have a bunch of good mechanics. They have good bikes. Um, if you were wanting to do it, these guys would put you on a bike if, if it's something that you'd be interested in. I said, well, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it on a super twin. Like, let's do it on the slowest bike possible. I don't want to step into the the deep, deep water yet. And uh, they actually won the twins race last year. And so... Um, I knew that they had a good bike and so they gave me the opportunity. And so I went over there with Patricia this year and uh, it was way different than the Pikes Peak Hill Climb. I'll tell you that. I mean, that's a time <laughs> trial and you only hit like 120 mile an hour one time. And then the Northwest 200 is just like, whew. I mean, it. I think I only got like maybe six or seven laps before it was time to grid up and go for my first race. But, uh, I did qualify fast enough to be in the first wave of riders, which was all the, the fast guys. And, uh, but I was dead last in the first wave. So it kind of took the pressure off. Like, okay, I'm going to go into this first turn. I'm not going to have a bunch of dudes trying to stuff me and, and make me feel uncomfortable. And then it's just up to me to tag along and, and then maybe pick some of these guys off. So I started 16th and I ended up finishing uh, 10th in the first race after a 10 second penalty. I blew one of the chicanes and I didn't come to a complete stop. You're supposed to come to a stop, put your foot down and then rejoin. And I was too enthralled in the battle that I was in that I kind of just rolled, turned my shoulder and got right back in the gas. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't want to lose the group I was with. It was too fun. And then, uh, so 10th in the first race, and then I ended up uh, 7th in the second race. So uh, I actually did pretty good. Passed a lot of people and uh, had a good time doing it. That's really good. Corey, tell me, I, I can't remember this, so forgive me if I'm incorrect about it, but did, didn't you race or haven't you raced in the Macau GP? I have not raced it, but I have attended it. Um, okay. I went over when, when the EBR Eric Buell racing, um, there was a team based out of England by the name of split Lath racing. Yes. And yes. so Mark Mil Mark Miller and Brandon Cretu were riding EBRs at Macau. 
and our season was over. This was in, uh, they always do it in November. And so we basically just kind of, the team owner, I had done a couple of British super stock rounds for that guy on the EBR. And so he was like, it'd be really cool if you could come over to Macau um, and see it and just kind of help the guys since you know the bike so well. And uh, so I basically just kind of went over as uh, a mechanics helper and, you know, those guys could just kind of bounce questions off me. And, you know, John from Split Lap, he was trying to get me to do the roads as well. And so why don't you come over and see Macau and, you know, if you maybe you want to do it, we could do it next year. And I went over and saw Macau and I was like, man, I don't, <laughs> I don't think I want to do any part of this. This is crazy. <laughs> I mean, I just, I rode the bus around with the boys and it was, it was a bit much, uh, but that was my first time seeing any kind of like real road race. So, um, but honestly, I don't, I think I'm good on Macau. I don't think I really want to do Macau. <laughs> well, that's why, that's why it's, a, you know, I wanted to ask you because when you talked about, you know, doing some of these road, true road races, like the Northwest 200 or things like that. And I thought, well, yeah, Macau, gosh, it used to be, we'd see those photos, like you said, in November in road racing world or whatever. And you'd see those guys going around corners that they were literally scrubbing their shoulders against, you know, concrete and everything. And, and I, I, I remember that split last team and um, certainly the EBRs, you know, involvement in that race. And it kind of is a perfect segue because I wanted to spend some time talking to you about the EBR because we've, we've had, Jeff may talk about it a little bit and just in speaking to him one-on-one, I know he has such reverence for that EBR and that brand and the time that he raced in world Superbike for EBR, but you also raced in here in America on the EBR and it's a V twin. So there's the connection there. Um, I, you obviously a relationship with Harley Davidson too there, but um, tell us about riding that motorcycle, a true V twin American Superbike, and it still kind of exists to this day. So tell us about that. And and I'm sure you wish that it was still around, but you probably enjoyed riding that, didn't you? Yeah, for sure. Um, I've always kind of been a fan of V twins. Yes. I mean, we go back to the the TZ two fifties, those are little V twin two strokes. And then I had my share of club racing SV six fifties. And then, you know, I had plenty of inline four cylinders, but then the opportunity came up. The first time I rode one of Eric's bikes, it was still a Buell. And so 2009, um, I, I had lost my ride. I rode for Ulrich's team in 2008 and Supersport, and then lost my ride that next year. So 2009, I spent all year racing Weir National stuff for Vezor Suzuki doing their endurance program and then racing sprint races on a 600 and a 1000. And then towards the end of the year, um, the team owner, Mark Young had done a little bit of testing for Eric on their 1125 RR superbike. And so they had already fielded Taylor Knapp, I think at mid Ohio. And then they wanted to do two bikes at the last race at New Jersey. New Jersey was a new track. Nobody'd been there before. They gave me the opportunity to go do a little testing on the bike. We rode at Autobahn uh, Country Club in Joliet, Illinois. And uh, I rode on the north course 
And I ended up breaking the track record the first time I rode it and was just like, man, this bike is badass. Like <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> and so we went to Jersey and, uh, you know, since nobody had ridden there, it was kind of a clean slate for everyone. And so I think I, I made it into super pole. That was when uh, DMG was running the program. So I made it into super pole. I qualified on the second row. I think I qualified eighth, and, um, I ended up finishing seventh and eighth that weekend in Superbike. And in the second race, I was only six seconds back from Josh Hayes, who won the race on Sunday. So the little 1125RR, I mean, we were like 18 mile an hour down on the front straight, but I had the fastest segment one splits of anyone in the race. So the thing, it just turned and handled and did all these things that the, the four cylinders didn't do. And so I was super excited about that opportunity that, you know, maybe I'm going to end up with like a factory Buell superbike ride. This would be amazing. And so Eric was kind of telling me, you know, we have this other bike, we have this 1190 and uh, we're going to, we're going to get it going. And they kind of showed me some pictures of it. And it was just like super exciting. Like, Oh man, this thing, this is, this thing's real. And then uh, shortly thereafter, Harley, dumped the whole Buell brand and Eric basically had to just kind of close doors. And so Buell was dead for maybe like a year and a half. And then Eric got some funding and, and restarted, uh, EBR motorcycles, Eric Buell racing. And so he started building that 1190 that he wanted to build under the Harley name. I mean, under Buell. And so the worst part about the whole deal was that 1190 was a game changer. It just didn't come out when it should have come out. Right. Because if it could have come out in 2010, it would have been right there with the R1s and the Suzuki's and, you know, the Ducati at the time. Like we battled with those guys in 2009 and we were right there. And so it was just a bummer that Eric had to kind of sit on it for a little while and find funding to build it. Cause once he built it, then the BMW came out with their bike and the R1 changed their bike. And, you know, the Japanese took a step forward, the European bikes took a step forward and, and he just came in with what he had from two years ago. And, and right then and there, it was a little bit long in the tooth, but at the right track and the right conditions, that bike was, phenomenal to ride you know my best superbike race i ever finished was fourth at laguna seca on the ebr 1190 and you know a little turn and burn track like that that's not big horsepower that track that bike did amazing so i'm super grateful for the time that i spent there I, i did like two and a half years working for ebr and riding their motorcycles and it was awesome and what i learned riding those big displacement v twin superbikes i'm definitely using now in the king of the baggers and super hooligans because i'm riding big v-twin super bikes or big v-twin engines you know that's awesome that you connected that that's exactly what i wanted you to do Corey. thank you and the other thing about that is it sort of so what i said at the top of the show which i thought was true so you you were a you were a factory super bike rider for a little while yeah it was a crazy year um 2014 was the last year that AMA Pro Racing ran the Superbike Series, and 
we had lost a bunch of rounds that year. So I think the season was only like six rounds long or something. Yes. Yeah. But, um, uh, between, uh, EBR and then hero, the Indian brand that was sponsoring and funding the EBR program, they really wanted to go world Superbike, And so they sent so 2013, the factory riders were Aaron Yates and Jeff may. And so they sent those two guys to World Superbike. And then Larry Pegram and I took over the stateside factory uh, Superbike program. So it was all kind of run out of Larry's truck. Um, but since I had ridden their bike the year before, I kind of, I got to take a step up and, and ride the factory bike, which was, which was really cool. I mean, not everyone can say they're a factory Superbike rider. I mean, I'll bet maybe not the the best team on the grid, but I was still still one of them. It was pretty cool. Yeah, and that's one of those that I wanted to definitely point out because you know now that now that Kyle and Travis are factory with uh, Harley, well, you were before with EBR, and that's that's a very interesting time. And then also, I remember during just for that short amount of time there, Chris Fillmore was on that KTM um, during that time too, right? I mean, he was racing Superbike during that. Yeah, Chris Fillmore and Taylor Knapp were on those RC8 ATMs. So that's right. It was that's neat. I mean, there was there was four, you know, well, one year, 2013, there was the two KTMs, and then there was four EBRs, and then the right. second year, two two of the EBRs left. So then it was just me and Larry versus uh, Taylor and Chris Fillmore. But yeah, it was neat. I kind of kind of miss being the big B twins and Superbike, but uh. It's just something that they don't build no more. Yeah, they were legit though. Well, so I think that's going to bring us to an end on this, Corey, but we got a lot of other little things about your career. Man, I'm going to have to, one of these off seasons, I got to write, do some tallying up because, you know, you think about Michael Barnes and not, not just how long he rode, but how many different bikes he rode. And you're right in there with a the mix as far as a rider who's ridden so many different brands of motorcycles, engine configurations, the whole thing from two strokes to between four strokes to, you know, well, in line fours and uh, your career has spanned a long time. But like I said, it still doesn't seem like you're, you're, you're still a young guy to me when I see you and you've got such enthusiasm and, you know, we wish you well the rest of the season and even more, because I'm sure you're going to continue racing with us and, and uh, you know, luck, good luck uh, next weekend at Brainerd. We'll make sure we stop in and say hello to you and that, that great team Saddleman group that with the four riders, including you. So again, thanks for being on with us. Yeah, I really appreciate it. You know, it's it's easy to smile when you're doing what you love. And when I'm at the racetrack, I'm doing what I love. So keep me on motorcycles and I'll keep smiling. There you go. All right, you Thank guys. You. Thanks a lot, Corey. And uh, good luck next weekend. And we'll see you in Minnesota in a few days. Hey, I appreciate it, guys. We'll see you soon.